sorry. So you're teaching microeconomics right now? Yeah. So right now I'm teaching intermediate micro. Okay. I looked it up and you're not teaching very many like intro level courses. So I'm a little intimidated as a non-econ student. Oh, no. I mean, like, so the, the, yeah, this is the lowest level class that I teach. And then uh, I teach the upper division international trade course, which is my area of specialty. And then I also teach the PhD course for international trade, which is also upper division for the PhD. So they, they do like an intro they're like a micro macro uh, econometric sequence in their first year. And then in their second year, when they're thinking about specializing, I do the course there for international trade as well. Like to take a step back if you're okay with that and ask you if you would like to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, so my name is Wenfeng Wong. I go by Wenfeng. I am an assistant professor of economics at University of Oregon. This is my what year? I came in 2017. So this is the start of my fourth, fifth year. The, um, my research is on international trade. So how did I get into, so how did I kind of become interested in this topic? So let me give you a back, let me give you my background. So I'm Malaysian, I'm born in Malaysia. I went to high school in India. And then I came to the States in Ohio, Oberlin College for my, for my undergraduate where I was a double degree in economics and also in the conservatory of music where at one point I thought I was gonna be a film composer. <laughs> so music composition. So I was always really interested in having been in kind of a number of different countries. I was really interested in the levels of development in each one of these. Like Malaysia is what you'd call a newly industrialized country where you know we fairly open, small open economy generally doing pretty well. And then when we went to India, it saw like huge varying levels of, of you know, um, income levels, depending on which part of, of India you're at, or even within a city. And then I came to the States, you know, obviously developed country. And so when I was in Oberlin, I had to take as part of my liberal arts requirement, uh, credits in social sciences. And I had no idea what social sciences was. I was always a pure science person. So I was, I always thought I was going to major in math or physics in the college. But I took the mathiest social science I could find, which is economics, and I just completely fell in love because it gave me a really concrete framework to think about countries and economic development and how that influenced or partly influenced the kind of different levels of development that I see in all these countries that I've lived in. And so that really kind of started my interest in, in, in economics. And then after Oberlin, I worked in D.C. for two years, where I worked for a, an international trade think tank, where I co-authored with my bosses a book on um, Doha Round. So the WTO has these multilateral trade agreements, partly kind of what I was telling you about in terms of my research interests, like the kinds of different trade agreements that countries sign. So the WTO runs these multilateral trade rounds. And the Doha round is the latest one that, that has um, basically stalled. It was stalled when I was, when I was in um, DC as well. And so we basically wrote a book on trying to like say, if you were to just conclude the round there and then, you know, don't try and um, add on anything else. Like what would be the estimated benefits to all of the countries that have signed on uh, there and then. And so 
that was what I did when I was in DC. And I realized that kind of if I really wanted to do more of this, I need a PhD. And then I went back to grad school in Madison, Wisconsin, and did my PhD. This level that you're teaching has students from different majors as well. Yeah, so this is a course, 311, Intermediate Micro, the one I'm teaching now, is the course that that students have to, it's a gatekeeper course, so in order to, if they want to major in economics, like this is a course that they all have to take. Oh, interesting. Do you notice the difference between the kinds of questions students who stay in econ and who leave econ ask? Oh yeah, for sure. It's always really interesting. I I, I asked a lot of open-ended questions in my in my courses, anyways, and I find that the range of answers that I get in 311 is a lot wider than let's say if I were to ask the same questions in my international trade course. By then, you know, this is like their their 400 level class, and so it's it's yeah, it's always very refreshing to kind of think about like how students will will approach the same like economic question. Yeah, there's so many, um, you know, trade issues going on right now, too, that I imagine interest in the subject is peaked. Yeah, you know, like, generally, as international trade economists, like, I feel like the a lot of the times, like, when we when we think about trade issues, we're just like, same old, same old, you know, like, as long as you keep trading, keeping your markets open, like, you know, that's generally going to be the case that that, you know, things will go well, like in recent years. That has not been the case, and all of a sudden, you know, the the topics in international trade has has really exploded, partly from like a trade policy standpoint in terms of you know what we're seeing with with the return to protectionism, meaning like countries are starting to close their borders with respect to to trade, you know, very worrying. There's also uh, this this uptick in in shipping congestion. You know that we've seen, and both of this, I I actually have research on. I I should give you a broad overview of what I do. I I generally am really interested in issues uh, that help or hinder trade flows. So specifically, trade frictions, right? So things that decrease tra- uh, frictions to trade or increase frictions to trade. So let me unpack that a little bit more. I think about transportation technology. You know, so whenever you're you're shipping things across the border, you need it to be to be transported. Specifically, I think about container ship shipping, and so you know that they're they're sort of how container shipping can can help trade flows. How container shipping is actually a network, and given that it's actually a network, goods don't just go directly between an origin and a destination. They go through these things called hubs. You know, think about like if you're going to ship something from Malaysia to the U.S., chances are it doesn't go directly from Malaysia to the U.S., stops in Singapore. And so you would think, obviously, very naturally, if anything happens to Malaysia or the U.S., that would affect trade flows. But if something happened to Singapore, now this is going to have disruptions to the network and it's also going to affect trade from Malaysia to the U.S. And that's kind of in an indirect way. Uh, things that affect the network could have direct origin destination trade flows implications. So then um, in terms of the other side of trade frictions that I study, which is trade policy. So I think about how, you know, if countries sign trade agreements, like how that would affect trade flows. And 
So there's uh, I've kind of two lines of, of research on that, like one in terms of trade policies that are signed under the World Trade Organization, the WTO. There's different kinds of trade policies, uh, trade agreements that you can sign. They could be free trade agreement. They could be customs unions. And I think about how countries' incentives change vis-a-vis the type of agreements that they sign. And then the other line of my research in that area is sort of like a, an overlap between trade and development economics, where I study the, the impact of a Vietnam-US bilateral trade agreement and how that affects Vietnamese firms. And so Vietnam, at the start of this trade agreement, is a low-income country. By the end of this agreement, uh, by, by the end of our period of study, which is 2017, 2018, is a middle-income country. So we want to understand like what happens when uh, a low-income country sign a trade agreement with the U.S. developed country, so small market versus big market, how that affects the local market. And, and this is particularly interesting to us because me and my co-authors, because we find that within you know, the Vietnamese market, there's kind of different types of firms. You know, it's not just like one type of firm. In fact, we have uh, local firms like the private domestic firms, but they also are state-owned enterprises. So these are firms that are very big. They get uh, some some amount of either uh, credit preferences, you know, if you're, you're going to apply for loans, like potentially they get like preference to, to apply for these loans because they, they have connections to the state. And then there's also Gap, you know, the clothing company coming in using cheap Vietnamese labor to then export to other countries, U.S. as well as other places we've seen. And so given that you have these three different firm types all responding to this trade policy change, this trade agreement, like how does that actually affect you know, the interaction of all of these in the local Vietnamese market? Do you tend to do long-term research and or like what's long considered long-term research and short-term research in your field? Yeah, no, that's a super interesting question. So um, the specifically to this Vietnam project, uh, one part of our contribution is that we're we're trying to look at a really long period. So the trade agreement was signed around the end, uh, end of 2000, early 2001. Our data runs from 2000 all the way to 2017. And so this is what we think of kind of like a longer term analysis. And I'll tell you why it's, it's, we think it's important because, uh, you know, generally you could obviously think about what happens immediately after, you know, like 2001, 2002, like what happens to this, to, to the local Vietnamese economy immediately after the trade agreement. But we know that, you know, like uh, in order to buy materials, in order to, to bring in machines, like capital investment, that takes time. You know, these are like very expensive equipment or, or you know, uh, setting up a business takes time. And so we want to be able to analyze the longer term effect. And in order to do that, we can't stop our analysis by like 2005. And additionally, we also know that governments treat state firms a little bit differently. You know, so maybe these are they're less credit constraints. So, you know, if they want to apply for loans, they're going to they're going to have pre- uh, special preferences. We also know that sometimes uh, governments treat state firms a little bit differently because they're very connected. And so all of this is is potentially going to mean that maybe if they're not doing so well, they wouldn't exit the market immediately because, you know, they have like 
maybe like a thicker cushion to land on before before they actually exit the market relative to like private firms that don't have, they're not as politically connected. And so if we actually want to study the impact of trade agreements opening up markets and making it more competitive for the local economy, well, maybe we want a longer term analysis because, you know, in a longer run, maybe we could actually see what the, what, what the, the, these competitive pressures, like what would they actually do to state firms? Okay. So I guess my next question would be how sensitive are trade agreements to like in political science speak like regime change? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very interesting question. As an economist, like we hardly think about the political economy situation, but I think that's 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 a very important aspect to actually be able to think about. I mean, governments change all the time and, you know, different governments would generally have different stances to to the kinds of, you know, to, to, to becoming to being more open to international trade or not. I mean, we've seen that in the last presidential um, the, the, the last president where, you know, generally you think of trade agreements as things that you sign on to and then uh, different presidents would, would abide by that trade agreement regardless of regime change. But the last president uh, was one of the first to, to basically step away from some of these agreements that that uh, previous presidents have signed on to. So, so maybe we're seeing a change. I don't know, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to see. Maybe we're seeing a change. It's a disturbing change because generally when, when governments sign on to trade agreements, there is the, the understanding that you don't violate the, the rules that you have agreed to. And so, you know, for sure, this is not something that's, that's within the scope of my research, but I think it's very interesting. Do you want to talk about your music experience? I'm really curious about your film composition and what inspired you to get involved in doing um, scores. Oh, that's funny. I haven't talked about this in a while. So I, when I was in India, I, so it's, it's an international school. We do IB. As I mentioned before, it's kind of a, 200 kids with like 90 over countries represented. So you, I was one of three Malaysians that were there at the time. And, and so, you know, we, we were really encouraged to kind of be creative. And also there's a lot, uh, there's a huge element of social work that was there, uh, but on the creative end. Uh, so I had a friend who, who's Israeli. She was, we, we were going to put on, she wanted to put on a play and she wanted original everything. And included, including original music. And so she came to me and she was like, would you write it? And I was like, I'd never done anything like that before. And I'm a pianist by training. And so I was like, well, I don't just want piano. And so I was like, oh, the German guy on campus plays drums. The Canadian girl plays flute. So these are the instruments that I have. And so I basically approached each one of them, talked to them about what they're comfortable doing and basically put together music that would accompany the play. And uh, we did well enough to be invited to Mumbai to, to, to put it on there at, at, at a theater there. And so with that, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And so I was talking to my piano teacher in India at the time, and she, she was the one, Mrs. Kama. Um, she's my, like, she's basically the inspiration behind like all of this. And she was the one who suggested Oberlin. She was like, you will go to Oberlin. You will apply to Oberlin. They have a double degree program. And, you know, I'm, always very, very grateful to, to her for kind of setting me on this path. I had never even heard of Oberlin up until then. 
So then that was Oberlin. And then I had a friend from Malaysia who's a filmmaker. And so uh, once he heard that I, I'm on this path, we started uh, talking. And so initially we did a bunch of short films and those were pretty easy, like 20 minutes, you know, and then he started venturing to feature films, which are, which are like two hours. So then they're a lot more intensive because then it, it was like a lot more music and, and much more challenging, but very, very fun. So we've been to a bunch of film festivals and yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really fun to be, to be able to do that. That's really neat. Do you, can I ask you about the process of pairing music to images? Do you, is that, that sounds like a very collaborative work. How did you go about matching or even creating emotions? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a very collaborative. Uh, I, I can only speak to kind of like what I do with with my uh, my director friend. So basically, he gives me kind of like raw footage or like partially edited footage, and then I give him motifs that I think about when I uh, when when I first see it. And so we kind of go back and forth on the length and like the kinds of music, and you know, he obviously tells me what the what the story is about and and all of that. So so yeah, very much iterative, like back and forth. And then we'll say, oh, uh, we want an expansion on, on on this particular theme, and so I got to give him like a couple different versions of the same theme. Yeah, it can definitely be like a really interesting background element or or a contrasting narrative element to to it yeah no my training is not in film music it's very much in kind of like um uh, just pure music where we where we uh, very instrumental sometimes very percussive and so less it kind of depends on on the phases yeah what um classes are you preparing to teach in the future are there any like dream classes you'd like to teach I'm actually teaching classes that I love right now because I, I very much enjoy teaching classes that are related to my research. So international trade, I guess if I were to dive down a little bit more, I'd love to teach kind of like more specific uh, classes that are that are based off of my research. So that would be very much in line of kind of like thinking about transportation technology or thinking about trade policies. Awesome. And I'm, I have a question for you that may be overly simplistic given your expertise, but I read about how in exports and also in flights, which I know is a completely a different topic, they've had to fly empty planes, ship empty containers in order to keep schedules. Um, I wonder if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, um, that is a great question because it's exactly one of my research topics. So uh, I have a paper that basically thinks about container shipping and takes it very seriously. So when you think about a container ship, it's going from, let's say, China to the U.S., you know, it brings all these containers that are filled to the U.S. After it unloads its containers, it has to go back to China to get to get its containers filled up again. And this is specifically because it's the container shipping uh, technology, right? All the goods are moved in containers and container shipping has really revolutionized uh, the way we kind of move goods across the world. And it's not just over the ocean. We actually have 
cargo shipping, like containers, but kind of different shaped in airlines and in air cargo holes too. And also obviously there's trucks and rails that use containers. And so when you have this kind of repositioning issue, right, you have containers that are being brought to the States and then they have to go back to China. You know, you don't have, you don't throw away the containers when you get, once you get to the U.S., you reuse them. And so when you're thinking about a trade route like the U.K. and the U.S., where that's it, the U.K. wants the same amount of goods from the U.S. as the U.S. wants the same amount of goods from the U.K., then you're generally going to have like pretty balanced filled containers, you know, containers are pretty filled going and pretty filled coming. But then when you think about something like, like U.S. and China, where the U.S. actually runs a huge trade imbalance with China, and that translates in terms of U.S. wants a lot of goods from China. China doesn't want that much from the U.S., right, especially in terms of goods that fill into containers. I mean, maybe China wants a lot of iPhones, but these things are flown instead of going into container ships. So what that means is that you have very filled containers one way. When you go back the other way, they're not so filled. And so as a container operator, if you're Maersk, that's a container ship company, you're going to say, well, I'm going to respond to demand and I'm going to charge a low price from US to China because I have to bring these containers back anyways. I have to bring the containers back or I still have to bring the ships back, right? So I have to, you know, keep keep uh, bringing these routes. You can think about them like buses. They have kind of like fixed stops that they publish ahead of time that they're going to go to to so go back and forth. And so what happens then is, you know, very, very low price. So at the time of my period of analysis, just a couple of years ago, it was about $2,000 from Shanghai to, to LA and then $600 back. Now the gap is even larger given, you know, given what we're seeing. And so, so you have this gap given that there's, uh, there's very kind of uh, low demand on the other side. So resultant, uh, as, as a result of this low price, the, the California Agriculture Department actually put out this this advisory that says you know if you're if you're a farmer in California you can actually ship your produce for very cheap to China take advantage of this low low container price you know so there's or, or if you look at the actual goods that were going up until very recently it used to be very bulky very cheap goods like paper waste or or uh, recycled products up until very recently actually China stopped uh, accepting a lot of this these goods and so that that actually put a hamper on 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 what goods actually go through so you have this kind of big gap what you also have is a systematic link between these two countries so anything that affects US's demand for China's goods is also going to affect the amount of containers coming, the amount of ships coming, and it's also going to affect the amount of containers going back and ships coming back. So in the case of, let's say, U.S. putting an import tariff on China, right, it's going to make goods more expensive for U.S. consumers. They're going to demand less of these goods. So if you have less demand for Chinese goods in the U.S., you're not going to need as many containers, right? You could bring them on smaller ships, or you don't need as frequent uh, ships coming in. And so all in all, your transport supply is going to be lower on the China to the US side. And if you have less supply, China to the US, you're also going to have less ships or less containers going back US to China, right? So without anything happening on Chinese demand for US goods, you're actually going to have lesser supply and that's going to jack up the prices 
for, for transportation from US to China. And so an import tariff that you levy on your, your trading partner could very well translate into a tax on your exports to that very same partner. Right, so this is going to be a, a spillover effect as a result of protectionist policies from countries that, that is manifesting itself directly through transportation technology. Right? We're not even thinking about retaliation. We're not talking about like any other kind of supply chain uh, uh, impacts as a result of this, this import tariff. It's just through the transportation technology. Wow. So that's that's one effect that that could potentially happen with the with the empties. What's happening recently with with these empty containers having to go back is that because there's all these delays, right? You might have known very recently there's all these delays. These ships are actually saying, you know, the US to China prices are low. They're very cheap, but because the the high price side is China to the US, we're actually not going to wait to even fill up these empty containers. We're just going to go back empty. And so if they're just going to go up, go back empty, any of the U.S. exporters, you know, the few U.S. exporters that were exporting their goods to China, now they're not even going to get that opportunity to, to ship their goods back because these container ships are just coming one way and then going back empty. Okay, wow. So maybe like the overly simplistic takeaway is just the demand for Chinese goods is so high that it makes more sense just to get more stuff and bring it over because recently the US yes. producers are not getting it out fast enough and can't get it out fast enough. Yeah. Or, or it's just that the port delays are making it such that it's not worth waiting. Gotcha. Thank you so much. I was so curious about that. Yeah, no, it's a it's a super interesting topic. Well, I mean, I'm biased, but it's a super interesting topic to to kind of look at in terms of you know like the 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 container shipping technology is such that generally you would have this this connectiveness between the two, but you know when it, when the port delays have become so onerous, like they just much rather just turn around and not even fill their containers. I know you teach higher level classes, but are there any? Um unshakable myths that students seem to keep too far into their education about how the economy functions that you'd like the opportunity to address to non-econ students? That's a great question. Uh, I guess, I guess as a trade economist, it's always, you know, it's always a very, trade is like a, an interesting topic in that throughout the course of history, you've always had kind of pro-trade and anti-trade fractions, and they fall on both sides of the political spectrum. So we've had politicians that are left-leaning, that are pro-trade, and are also anti-trade, and the same thing on the right, that are pro-trade and also anti-trade. So so I guess like what I would love to, to be able to say is that it's actually a very nuanced topic, right? Like, who international trade benefits is very much dependent on on whose perspective you're looking at. You know, generally when when we're seeing this very worrying uh, trend of protectionist uh, policies that are that are happening in the world, you know, a lot of the times the 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 lobbyists 
for these protectionist policies are are not going to be the same as like you and I, like the consumers. And and you know, depending on who you're looking at, it really the the impact of these protectionist policies can be very very different. And generally, it's the consumers that are that are hurt. You know, people who lobby for these are are going to benefit because they're generally kind of producers of these goods that they want protection for, or maybe they're pandering to a particular constituent that will you know smaller subset that that will benefit from this. And but generally, the um, protectionist policies will 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 affect consumers. It's a different matter if you know these consumers are also workers in industries that might or might not benefit from the protectionists. That's a that's a different matter. And I think that gives rise to the fact that this is actually a very complex topic. And, and part of why we're seeing kind of pushback against trade is, is that you know who benefits and who doesn't benefit from trade, there's a direct impact in terms of whether or not you're a consumer. There's also an indirect effect of whether or not you're working in this industry, whether or not you're seeing uh, your jobs get offshored or not as a result of, you know, uh, the factories finding cheaper labor or not, or competition from foreign producers who can make that same good cheaper than, than your industry can locally. I wondered what your experience was like working at a think tank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am always very happy to talk about my experience then I say this in class as well like for students that are interested in going into economic policy you know always very happy to discuss my experience there I work for uh, the Peterson Institute for International Economics so uh, this is a trade think tank so basically what we do is we do a lot of policy briefs so thinking about you know what happens uh, like back of the envelope calculations a lot of the times but this allows us to turn around uh, pieces of analysis a lot faster than, than I would these days as an academic. Like, you know, if I'm going to turn around pieces of analysis, it just takes me much longer because I'm trying to get it as accurate as possible. So with uh, in, in, in think tanks, like they're, they're kind of more big picture. They're saying like, okay, like if you have this policy, we're going to give you a back of the envelope calculation so that people can, can, can react a lot quicker to, to these pieces of news. And so when, when I did my work on the, the Doha round and trying to uh, look into the, the benefits of that, that's exactly what we did. So we look into, let's say if you end the Doha round today, you know, what would be our estimated benefits to all the big countries? And that's going to be you know, US, Europe, Canada, also the, the big developing countries, India, Brazil, China. You know, and, and then we say, let's say if you were to extend this to allowing for trade liberalization in services, if you extend this to allow for trade liberalization and trade facilitation, so not just a decrease in import tariffs, but also help facilitate trade. That could be very kind of difficult to, to quantify things, you know, like make it quicker turnaround at ports, you know, instead of having to leave your goods there. You know, as a result of 9-11, you know, understandably for security concerns, like port processing times have gone up quite a bit because, you know, they want to test for, for, for um, uh, they, they want to be careful about what, what's kind of coming in through the ports. And so those kinds of things will make it costlier to do business, right? Because your goods are going to be stopped at the port for longer, but 
it's hard to translate that into a dollar amount or like a tariff that kind of brings it down. So all of that kind of goes into the category of trade facilitation. So I really enjoyed the work that I did there because you know it was it was very quick turnaround pieces of uh, pieces of analysis, and I felt a lot closer to policy. Are you, uh, they were advising politicians. Uh, the the Malaysian trade minister actually visited our our think tank at the time, and so uh, I got I got to kind of look at kind of a big picture take on Malaysia's trade policy uh, at the time, and so that was that was really cool. Uh, and what's next for you? Uh, so I will answer that in terms of what I'm working on now, in terms of my my research agenda. In terms of follow-up work from, from the round-trip container shipping paper that I told you about, I am looking at container shipping as a network. Generally, we think of trade as just an origin destination link, but because the trading network uh, is, is transported by container ships and container ships travel on a hub and spoke network, that means that goods from, let's say, Malaysia to the US, you know, they go through hubs like, like Singapore, so anything that happens at hubs are going to have reverberating effects to Malaysia and the US. So, you know, origin destination trade could be affected by these third party countries that are seemingly unrelated. And so we take this network very seriously. We found like really interesting data that allows us to trace a shipment from its origin to its destination through the hubs. And we basically run simulations on what would happen to world trade given that we have the network, if we just take each, each node in the network and perturbate it, basically uh, make, it harder to, make it harder to access each node in the network. And then we calculate what happens to world welfare as a result. So that gives us a sense of how important each one of these countries, these are the nodes in our network, how important each one of these countries is to world trade and world welfare. And so we do this, you know, we had like over 100 countries and we rank them, which country has the biggest impact. And the one at the top is Egypt. And so you may remember earlier uh, last year, the Suez Canal was blocked. And, and for that period of time when it was blocked, you know, there was these huge impacts on trade, ships were piling up. And it's the same thing as what we found in, in our results from just looking at each one of these countries in the network, Egypt has the biggest impact on, on world trade. That's amazing. I am really interested in that research. I, on the opposite end of the intellectual spectrum, I saw a great meme recently. It just said underneath, um, I've never seen a ship look embarrassed before. <laughs> but I have, yeah, I had no idea Egypt was so uh, critical to the dynamic. I wondered if there were other like surprising bits of knowledge you came across when doing this research that you'd like to share. Yeah, yeah. So we were able to, because we have these very detailed data on how exactly shipments are shipped, we have a couple kind of stylized facts that, that people might not necessarily know beforehand. And so on average, a shipment, when it goes to the U.S., will stop in two more countries before it gets there. And so you wouldn't think that that would be the case. You would think generally if you ship something, you know, it would go directly. But that's not the case. It would stop in two additional countries. 
And, you know, maybe if you, if you're a little bit skeptical, you could say, well, these are just stops. Maybe, you know, they stay on the container ships. Like this doesn't really matter, but we trace this at the container level. We could also tell you that a container that originates in Malaysia doesn't go to the U S on the very same ship. Majority of the containers that go to the U S they get put onto a different ship before they go directly to the U S. So this would be my example of container from Malaysia bound for the U.S., but it's loaded onto a ship that's bound for the U.S. in a different country, in Singapore, for example. So this good is produced in Malaysia, gets put into a container in Malaysia, and it goes to Singapore. It could go either ship or train or truck to Singapore. And then in Singapore, it gets consolidated with other containers probably from that region, onto a big ship, and then it goes directly to the U.S. This is probably a very large question for this, but why so many stops? And um, I'm guessing for financial reasons, it's efficient in some way. And I wonder if there are also problems attributed to that mode. That's a great question. And and so what we're finding is, is actually economies of scale. So container ships are getting much larger these days. And even though a container ship, you know, these days are like, you know, 15,000 containers up to 20,000 containers per ship, they still just need one captain, you know, handful of crews anywhere from like 15 to 20 crew members. So whether or not you run a 20,000 container ship versus you run like a 5,000 container ship, the number of people you need, the, the amount of overhead cost is still roughly the same. So the, the, the cost savings per container becomes a lot larger, the larger ship you run. And so this is what exactly is driving this. So containers from Malaysia goes to Singapore, containers from Philippines goes to Singapore, same thing with Indonesia goes to Singapore and they get put on a much larger ship and then they go to the US. And so this is why we're seeing this indirectness. It's because they're taking advantage of the cost savings from being able to run a large ship. And this is something that we can actually see in our data because we have the names of the ships. We can match them to their capacities. And then we find that if you're a big country like China, the average size of your ship to the US is going to be very large. That makes sense. If you're a ship from Singapore, the size of a ship, the average ship to, to the US is actually still about the same. And this is because they can use this big ship by consolidating goods from Malaysia and the Philippines and Indonesia. And we can say that from the same, from, from using containers from Malaysia as well, we see that goods from Malaysia, if they go through Singapore, will go on much larger ships. than if goods go directly from Malaysia to the US, they go on much smaller ships. So the other way to think about this is that because we allow for this indirectness, because we allow for these big ships to do this consolidation, it allows for smaller countries that otherwise would have to pay more for a small ship because it's not as efficient to trade, right? They're gonna, they're gonna be able to take advantage of the cost savings from a big ship by being able to route their goods through hubs and take advantage of the network. That's incredible. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. And the potential problems with it, do things ever stay in one port too long? Or is that a possible uh, downside? Of Sure, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have like uh, more time 
right? And, and maybe more time would equate to be more costs because we actually see the, the uh, where these goods are routed through. We could actually calculate time. We could also calculate distance, right? Because they're stopping in these places. We could calculate what the actual resultant distance is. And we find that that is right. If you do this indirectness, you are going to use more time. You're going to go further distances, but still like this is optimal. Like we're seeing this actually, actually uh, happening in the real world. And so by revealed preference, right. By the fact that people are choosing to do this in, 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 in actual, in, in the data, there has to be some cost savings, you know, by routing through the hubs, there has to be some cost savings and one observed way that we see in the data that has this cost saving is these big ships. So even though it's taking you out of the way, it's resulting in higher time, like more time spent, the fact that you're still doing this and on big ships gives us like uh, uh, an idea that how much these big ships are actually saving uh, these, these shippers in terms of time and money. Awesome. Thank you so much for explaining that. No, no worries. Is there anything you would like to add that I didn't ask about? Uh, well, I guess I'll give a pitch to, to something that's much newer. So uh, I have a project with Bruce Vonnegut, who is a faculty member and, and also dean at the university, also the economics department, where we got an NSF grant, a National Science Foundation grant, to hire RAs, and, and I've been working with a bunch of uh, undergrads here at UO, which has been super rewarding, to basically look at the long-run relationship between cities and trade. So basically what we're doing is we're going into like really old archives uh, from like the, we're looking at like 1800s onwards. So these are like old, old like manuscripts that have been digitized by just taking pictures. And they capture data on how much trade that was going on at the time, how many uh, population there are in the cities around the world. And a lot of these were taken by the British government. As you know, they were a, a huge colonial power. And so they colonized a lot of countries, Malaysia included, but they also kept really detailed records. And so they were, they were keeping records on how many ships that were coming through, whether or not these are steamships or sail ships. So in the 1800s, there's a uh, 1800s to 1900s, there's a there's a change from sail to steam as the steam technology came on. And so we're we're capturing all of this data with the help of RAs and and looking into what happens to the growth of cities as a result of this technological change. What happens to their wages because they actually capture wages of a domestic worker of a tradesperson that are in these cities at the annual level. Same thing with prices of goods. Like they, they have a, a table of, this is how much like eggs cost. This is how much like certain um, meats and produce costs. And we have all of these prices across different countries and cities. And we're gonna be looking at how that changes as a result of technological changes over time. Wow, I had never thought about how specifically the change from one type of ship to another would affect industrialization. That's gonna be such interesting research. Thank you. Yeah. So I let me give you like some intuition as to how that works. Like before, when you're when when you're just sailing, whether or not you're on the wind path would really matter, right? You're you if you're on the wind path, it'd be super easy to sail in and out of your port. 
doesn't matter whether or not you're actually close to resources or if you are actually like a very, uh, you know, if you have like really good, uh, if you have coal, for example, or, or you have like uh, mining opportunities in your in your area, just the wind path would determine whether or not you're you're um, you're going to be you're going to be a strategic location with steamship that eliminates all of that. Right. With steamship, what matters is, are you close to natural resources? Are you uh, a, a good trading port because you're close to you know, fertile land so that you can have a lot of agricultural output to sell? And so steam eliminates all of that advantage that sail used to have in terms of wind direction. So a lot more places could get in the game of trade. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, I hope you have a great term and great year. And I wish you a lot of luck with the project and congratulations on your grant. Thank you so much, Kate. It's very, very nice to talk to you. So nice talking with you too. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, no worries. You have a good day and a great year too. Thank you so much for listening to Duck Brains. Duck Brains was created to give professors and graduate educators a chance to discuss their research, backgrounds, and passions. This episode of Duck Brains was produced, researched, and edited by me, Kay Jackson. And the concept, music, and logo for Duck Brains are my creations and my responsibility. Duck Brains is just one of many great podcasts put out by the Daily Emerald. To be the first to know about all our new shows, follow The Daily Emerald wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again. Stay curious and question everything.